Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we conclude our series today, Persevering in Hope, with a message entitled, Encouraging Words to Faithful Christians. So turning your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 13 to 18, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. We all need to be encouraged. No one has the strength to carry on in faithfulness without someone coming alongside who says, you're doing well. Carry on. You can make it. I'm with you. God has never abandoned you. God will provide you with all you need so that you will pass through into glory with his blessing. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Just don't give up. There are so many different ways in which Christians can encourage each other. I recently heard a story of a young couple very much in love. They were getting married, but Sue, the bride-to-be, was very nervous. And so she confided in her pastor, Will I be a good wife? Will we continue to stay in love for a lifetime, given that you know so many couples have failed? What if illness or disaster strikes and it causes a greater strain than we can bear? And so Sue told her pastor that her worst fears were plaguing her mind. Well, on the day of the wedding, the pastor decided to encourage her. He had chosen to speak on 1 John 4:18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. That, that text was meant to encourage her. But very unwisely, the pastor asked the best man, Fred, to read the text for the wedding day. He said it would surprise the couple if he read it to them. See, the best man, Fred, had not been to church, and he didn't know anything about the Bible. And so, in order to prepare... Fred simply went to the table of contents in the Bible to find the verse. However, he didn't know the difference between John and 1 John. So on the wedding day, the pastor said that the best man had a good verse for Sue. And that was Fred's grand moment. He got out a Bible and with trembling hands, he began to read. But instead of reading 1 John 4.18, perfect love casts out all fear, Fred read John 4.18, which says, You've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. (laughs) Well, you know, what started out as a plan to encourage ended up as a shock. And that probably goes to show that not everyone is destined to encourage at the right moments. But putting silliness aside, there are in Scripture passages that are meant for our encouragement. And I've already made mention of Philippians 1 verse 6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. We might think about Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We might think of Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now, we know that Romans 8 had not yet been written in the time when Paul wrote the Thessalonian letters, but we do know that Romans was standard teaching wherever Paul went. So, you know, it might have been that he said something very like that to the Thessalonian believers while he was there. And Psalm 27 was in their Bible, and they might have read it in the days when their persecution was most difficult. But one thing we know with certainty, the believers in Thessalonica were under constant pressure, pressure from persecution on the outside, false teaching on the inside. And in order to remain strong, as they had been, 
They needed a constant encouragement. The end of 2 Thessalonians consists of words that are meant to do exactly that, encourage the believers in Thessalonica. Yeah, Paul had already encouraged them as he had told them how often he thanked God for them. On two occasions, he has made mention of his thanksgiving to God for them. He's mentioned the love they have for each other, the steadfastness of their faith, and then later he again mentions that they're standing firm and that they're obedient to the apostolic tradition. See, Paul had noticed, and more important, God had been noticing these wonderful things among them. And then in order to encourage them further, Paul painted a vivid picture of the return of Jesus and that as his return, Jesus would inflict vengeance on his foes and he would reward the faithful. That is to say, things aren't always going to be this tough. The very best days are ahead of you yet, so take heart. And yet it was true that some among them were not engaged in productive work and they had become busy bodies. And perhaps it was this group that was responsible for spreading some of the false rumors that upset the faith of some. Yeah, there were problems in Thessalonica, and it's true, the problems needed to be dealt with and addressed. It's not unlike that in almost every church. You know, the problems may differ, but the problems remain. You can't go to church that's not beset with problems, sins. And then let me personalize that. You've never encountered an individual believer who doesn't have areas of personal struggle. That doesn't mean that, you know, our lives are beset by gross sins. I mean that the struggle with the world and the flesh and the devil just carries on. I also mean that the struggle is there with our fears and our doubts. And so how should Paul end this letter? To a church that's been faithful and unmoved in the face of persecution and yet did have problems. Well, let's read the last section of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, 13 to 18. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is a sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. You know, in one way, the ending of this letter might seem somewhat unremarkable. Keep on going, he says. Don't allow lazy, busy bodies to make an inroad into your church. Grace be upon you. That's, that's about it. But as with all of Scripture, we should read it more slowly. And notice what's being said. You know, we might find if we just hurry through to the end that we'll miss something important. So let's go over it again, slowly. Verse 13. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Now, there's something implied here, and it must not be missed. The only reason Paul can say, don't grow weary of doing good, is because they're doing good. They're holding firm. They're not making compromises. They haven't abandoned their faith in the storm of persecution. You see, the mere fact that Paul could say, don't grow weary of doing good, is because he could say, look, you are doing good. Up to this moment, your Lord and Savior is pleased with you. Yes, you can have problems, but you can still be doing good. And so because they're doing good, Paul encourages them to just carry on. Don't stop. Don't stop running the race. Don't stop loving one another. Don't stop holding firm in persecution. Don't stop hoping. 
never grow tired of doing what's right. There's a second thing we should notice in this short verse. Notice that Paul begins with the words, as for you brothers. You know, in the previous section, Paul was telling the church they should keep away from those brothers who are walking in idleness. I mean, these were the busy bodies. But now he writes, as for you brothers. So do you hear what he's doing? He's making a distinction between the majority and those few who are walking in idleness and creating problems. That means that Paul has noticed that the problem of laziness, that was only a problem for the minority. It didn't mark the majority. See, here's a secret. One of the ways so many of us easily launch into despair is when we fix our eyes on our problems and our failures only. I'm not as loving as I should be. I've not prayed with a kind of fervency that is properly due a Christian. I need to be bolder in sharing my faith with others. I need to be less sensitive and and, and self-focused when I'm being criticized. I need to be freer in my willingness to forgive. Now, all those things may well be true, but they don't constitute the whole truth. Is Christ in you? Have you begun to notice the growth that has taken place in you? Did you notice that you've begun to see more of the fruit of the Spirit than you had seen in the past. While you might still be timid in sharing your faith, did you also notice that you've been finding a greater freedom than you have found before? Take notice of that. See, don't you see, if all you do is articulate your failures, we're going to forget those areas where we're doing good, where Christ is becoming supreme in everything we do. Don't you ever forget that. And then when you see those areas where you have done well or where progress is being made, can you also hear the voice of your Lord telling you, don't grow weary of doing good or of doing well. Every one of us knows that weariness in doing good might overtake any one of us. Did you remember what Paul said in Galatians 6, 9? And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Everyone has a story. Your own story is not just about your birth, but your new birth as well. Jesus has granted you a story of life and of eternal life. Dr. John Newfelt has a series entitled Your Salvation Story. In these five messages, he unpacks the theological and practical implications of our redemption in Jesus. This month, Back to the Bible Canada is offering a free CD copy of Your Salvation Story with a special booklet to help you reflect on your God-given grace. It'll help you to unpack and offer clarity on some of the misconceptions you may have about your own salvation. So to request your free CD series and reflection guide, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And don't hesitate, the reflection guide is available only as supplies last and more can be purchased for group use. How often have you felt that your obedience to Christ and His commands are going unnoticed by others. Perhaps you've been serving Christ faithfully in some area and no one's ever said, thank you. Has that been grating on you? Have you sensed bitterness in your spirit that others are so readily thanked and you're being ignored? Perhaps you need to remember that God isn't ignoring you. 
Perhaps you need to remember that this was not the season for reaping, but that doesn't mean that there won't be a season of reaping in the future. I had a very dear friend and mentor who would often say, God knows. He said it when he was unjustly criticized, and he said it when he served without anyone noticing. He said it with no bitterness at all. He said it in hope. God knows, he said. God cares. God will appoint a season for reaping. And so don't give up. Carry on. Continue to be faithful. And don't let anyone, especially the enemy of your soul, ever say to you, your faithfulness is getting you nowhere. It's untrue. God knows. Don't you grow weary of doing good. But then Paul has a command for those who are doing well, a way for them to continue to do well. And that's where we come to verses 14 and 15. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, Paul addresses the other side. Just because you're doing well doesn't mean you shouldn't be dealing with those things that might threaten your doing of good. Paul knows that there are those who take no notice of what he says in his letters. And he must address the issue. And the Thessalonian believers, well, they've got to address that issue as well. So let's talk about church discipline, shall we? I know that many of us don't like to talk about it. It makes us uncomfortable. Indeed, I've noticed a trend in this. You know, there were times in history where every church kept records of those who had been removed from membership in any given year because of some matter of discipline. And then as in our day, most churches have never experienced anyone being taken from the church records because of discipline. Now, I don't aim to address the matter of whether some form of discipline should happen every year, but but it's very clear to me that most churches today only encourage by offering praise. See, they never encourage by offering words of warning and even words of rebuke. See, that means we're allowing people to go their own way without a single word of warning or a single action being taken. Now, when it comes to church discipline, we should know that there are a number of degrees of church discipline. So, for instance, 1 Corinthians 5. Well, that's an example of a kind of discipline where excommunication becomes necessary. See, in that passage, Paul mentions a form of sexual immorality that should have shocked the Corinthian Christians. A man was sleeping with his stepmother, and the church in Corinth was proud because of their permissive spirit. And to that, Paul rebukes them. In 1 Corinthians 5, 4 and 5, he writes, When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. See, if that sounds harsh, it's because it's meant to be harsh. The church of Jesus is required to send a message that God takes this kind of behavior as an affront to his holiness. After all, Revelation 22.15 says that the sexually immoral have no place in the holy city to come. Unless the church makes this plain, people aren't going to get it. But there are other levels of discipline. Another level is found in Matthew 18, where Jesus speaks of one believer sinning against another believer. And in most cases, says Jesus, these matters should be handled in a private manner. And once resolved, that's it. No reason to go forward with anything else. Of course, if 
it can't be resolved, another person gets involved, and only in the case of last resort is it a matter of church discipline. And so given that there are various degrees of church discipline here in 2 Thessalonians, where Paul encourages the church to stay away from some people, and then he adds, but don't regard them as an enemy, rather a brother or sister. So what's that about? Well, the answer has to do with the previous section. The previous section deals with those brothers who refused to work and instead became busy bodies. They became the source of rumor and scandal and false teaching. Don't overreact, says Paul, and throw them out of the church. That's not good discipline in this case. Rather, have nothing to do with them so that they might be ashamed and change their behavior. But why have nothing to do with them? I mean, doesn't that sound harsh? Well, I suppose on one hand, it might seem that way. But here's an issue that Paul understands very well. See, the problem with busybodies is they have far more time on their hands than anyone else has. They're always talking about something, complaining about something, causing problems about something. And so what's to be done with them? Don't engage with them at all, says Paul. Don't reward them by giving them attention. See, that matter will only feed an already difficult situation. But here, notice Paul, in order to encourage God's people, is not only pointing out the positives that must continue, Paul thinks encouragement must also come with an action plan as to how to deal with matters, if left unchecked, would grow to become major problems. Encouragement must come in words of praise as well as words of warning. I mean, after all, if you're in generally good health, but you have skin cancer on your arm, no doctor is ever going to say, look, you're in great shape, and then say nothing about the skin cancer that could threaten you if not dealt with immediately. It's not encouragement. It's medical malpractice. Now, the very last section of the book contains a benediction, then a word of clarification, and then a second benediction. It almost feels as if Paul was closing the book with a final blessing. And then in the middle of that closing blessing, he says, oh, yeah, I just remembered something very important. See, that important bit, that's found in verse 17. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is a sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. Well, the reason that's so important is because Paul knows that there was a rumor that he had sent a letter telling these believers and perhaps other believers, that the day of the Lord had come. It was not true. And so in verse 17, it's a way in which that church, as well as all other New Testament churches, could authenticate a letter from Paul. Paul would normally dictate his letters to his secretary, who would write down what he said, and then in the end, Paul would add something in his own handwriting so that everyone could verify his writing. In essence, that's Paul telling a church that it must verify truth claims. Every church is required to stand upon the truth of Jesus, and that truth is the truth that comes to us from the apostles and the prophets. Everyone else might have an opinion, but these men had heard directly from Jesus himself, and theirs was the standard of truth. The church of Jesus is never about, you know, your truth claim versus my truth claim. The church of Jesus is about one truth claim. It comes to us directly from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, overseen by the Holy Spirit. Truth is God's truth, not just our interpretation. Paul adds, verse 17, so that the church would no longer trade in rumors or opinions, but only in truth. 
Jude 3 speaks about that when it speaks about the truth once for all delivered to the saints. So let's look at how Paul closes the book. In verse 16, he mentions peace, and then in verse 18, he mentions grace. That's how Paul started his book, Grace and Peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now in the end, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. It was Jesus who reconciled you to God, he says, by his death on the cross. May you experience that peace in every way. And then at the end, Paul adds, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Grace, that's favor with God. It's undeserved, but it's given to us because of the fact that God loves us. It comes from the loving hand of God's own Son. May that grace go with you, says Paul, because he knows that it will. That's realistic encouragement. It tells us that we're doing well, but it also tells us that we need to guard against those things that might cut into our progress. But it also reminds us that when we stand firm, we stand firm because God is for us. Grace continues to go with us. Jesus provides us with that assurance. Thanks so much, John. It's a great series. Uh, Let me ask you this final question. How would you define encouragement or, or how should we understand what it means to be encouraged? Well, maybe a part of the way to answer that is to say to ourselves, what are we encouraging people for? Um, If the encouragement is so that uh, we will be all that Christ wants us to be, that we'll walk in obedience to him, that we will pursue the life of holiness and have our hearts fully set on the Lord's coming and ruling and reigning with him, if this is what we are encouraging people to do, then let's do it with all our hearts and whatever means that we have. Uh, That will include um, rebuking them for their sin uh, and also when they're doing well to urge them not to grow weary. So all that's a part of encouraging. But, you know, every once in a while, I mean, encouragement gets you used in such a way that, you know, whatever a person decides to do, we want to encourage them to, you know, just simply express themselves. That's never the Christian goal. In fact, we should discourage that. We should encourage them to get to know the ways of Christ Um, We should encourage them to read their Bible. If they're not, let's discourage them until we can encourage them. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. If you're considering a vacation in 2024, We'd love to invite you to join Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Against Phil Calloway, and the leadership team behind them on a Caribbean cruise event from April 5th to the 14th, 2024. This vacation opportunity will provide beautiful scenery. Time being refreshed and challenged by the Bible teaching of Dr. John, laughter, fellowship, and spiritual encouragement with Laugh Against Phil Calloway and times of worship and song with feature musical guest, Amanda Stott. This is a time to be refreshed on so many levels. For more information, to download the itinerary, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. And please note that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are spent. All related costs are covered by those who participate.